Well, good morning. Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. I'm glad you all are here. I'd like to open you, I'd like to open, I would like you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1 today. John chapter 1. And as you find our text, I do want to personally welcome each one of you here at NBC. We are so glad that you are here. Now, believe it or not, once upon a time, I used to play football. You see, I've been this size since I was 13, minus some extra insulation. And so in the early days, football was a lot of fun. And I remember, or actually I recall, thinking to myself, I wonder if I would have gotten any bigger if my diet would have consisted of something more than Mountain Dew, Twinkies, and canned raviolis. That was my three food groups growing up, and so I probably could have been a little bit bigger, but that's what I consisted my diet of, and I had a good time with it. But I remember one day we were busing across town to our crosstown rivals, and I consumed that pregame ritual of Mountain Dew and Twinkies, and I was ready to go. And so it was a great day, but little did I know that day I would set a record that to my knowledge has never been broken. Now, this is not a record to brag about. You see, I hold the record for the most penalties in one game. Now, if you don't know football, you know, 30, 45 yards is a lot of penalties for a fellow in a game. My record is 240 yards. Now, I did a Google search yesterday, and apparently no NFL team has ever committed that many penalties in one game. So, very distinct and uh, very uh, not proud of that record. But do you realize nobody remembers my record because something even more astounding happened during that game? You see, there was another guy on our team that was bigger and faster than me. And right before halftime, he intercepted the ball. And then he started running the wrong way. Now, we started running after him, and we were screaming his name, but the other team started blocking for him, and he scored. And reality set in for him as the team started jumping and celebrating with him, and you could see his heart sink from the distance. But here's what I've come to realize over time. You see, my buddy was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And that's my question for you today. Could you be sincere? but sincerely wrong? In our Bible text today, we're going to meet a man who was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. So let's take a look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 45, and let's remember as we read this, this is the word of God. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him from whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you use your word to comfort and challenge hearts today. May you help each person to set aside their burdens so they may hear from you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. The church said, Amen. amen, church. This is a story of a man whose heart was right yet whose mind was wrong. 
whose prejudice was great, and yet whose heart had no deceit. There's no doubt that he was confused. He was like many good people today, well-meaning, but with wrong ideas. Sincere, but sincerely wrong. His name is Nathaniel, and allow me to share four things with you today about this skeptic who meets the Savior. And fittingly, that's the title of our message today. A skeptic meets the Savior. The first thing I want you to notice is this, his confrontation with Jesus. Philip brokered the intro that led to Nathaniel's confrontation with Jesus. Philip was the show me disciple. My wife and I met as teenagers at a university in the show me state of Missouri. Philip modeled this state's motto perfectly. Philip was the reasoning, calculating disciple. He had to figure things out. He had to know in his own mind and Philip figured out by a study of prophecy that Jesus was the Messiah. And as he was excited about it, he found Nathaniel and he had to share with him. The first thing Philip could think about was, hey, I want my buddy Nate to know about this. We found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the great proofs of the inspiration of the Bible. It is the great proof of the deity of Jesus Christ. Did you know there are more than 300 prophecies concerning the prophet or the, the coming Messiah? There's a mathematical law called the law of probability. Now, I want you to think about these 300 prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus, and I want you to take mathematical law of probability and see how it works. Let's look at the Old Testament and see the Messiah must first come from the human race, a race because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is God speaking, and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the first gospel message is that God is going to send the seed of the woman to be the Messiah, to bruise the serpent's head, and it speaks of the Messiah who will come. By the way, the Old Testament rabbis used to ponder over this. Why? Well, because generally, when the seed is spoken of, it speaks of the seed of man, not the woman. But of course, we know that Jesus was virgin born. There's a human race. So all right, we can eliminate all the angels and all the animals as the possible Messiah. Now, secondly, God narrows the focus even more. And there's a section out of that race. You will remember that the human race was corrupted. God sent a flood, and out of the flood there came what? Three families from Noah and his bride. There was the family of Ham, of Shem, and Yepid. Well, which section of that race did God choose? Genesis 9, 26 tells us, He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So now we have not only a human race, but a section out of that race. But now God is going to tighten the focus a little more. And God is going to get us a nation out of that section, out of that race. So we go to Genesis chapter 12, and God chooses a man named Abram. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. But wait a minute, God's going to tighten the focus even more. And God says, I want a tribe out of that nation, out of that section, out of that race. And so God chooses a tribe. You see, Isaac was born to Abraham, and Isaac had two sons, and his two sons were Jacob and Esau, and God chooses Jacob. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Do you see how God is beginning to make things come into view? Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is the one from whom the Messiah is going to come. 
But Jacob had 12 sons. Which of these 12 sons does the Messiah come from? Genesis 49.10 helps us out. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from the, between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice how God continues to tighten the focus. Notice God is saying, from the human race, there must be a section out of it, and there must be a nation out of that section. There must be a tribe out of that nation, and a tribe is Judah. But God tightens the focus even more. There must be a family out of that tribe, and God chooses a family out of Judah. Look at Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Because Jesse was of the tribe of Judah, and Judah was a part of the family of Abraham, and Abraham was a Shemite, and a Shemite was a human being born of a woman. We're going to get to the end here in just a second, so hold with me. But now God begins to tighten the focus even more, and God not only gets the family, but the family of Jesse. God gets a household out of that family, the house of David. And the focus gets tighter, for God says concerning David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And then verse 16 continues, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It is not by accident that Jesus was born in the city of David. There must come a household out of the family, out of a tribe, out of a nation, out of a section, out of the human race. But God is not finished yet. And God takes the family of David, and God says there must be a woman out of that family. The family of David, not only just any woman, but a special woman. Look at Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And God found that one woman out of that one household out of that one family, out of that one tribe, out of that one nation, out of that section, out of the human race. And this specific woman God has chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. Do you see the law of mathematical probability building? Now we wrap it up with Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ferata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. Who is the Messiah? His name is Jesus Christ. Friend, do you think all of this happened by chance? No. It's mathematically impossible. Peter Stoner has written a book called Science Speaks. And in that book, he talks about the mathematical law of probability. Earlier I said there are over 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah. I have mentioned 10 in the past few minutes. Peter Stoner mentions... 300. But when we only take eight prophecies, only eight of these from the more than 300, he asks a question. What is the mathematical probability that these could have been fulfilled by chance? Do you know what it is? It is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I don't know how to explain a number like that. Just take a 1 and write 17 zeros after it. Well, you say, I don't understand either. Neither can I. So here's the illustration that he gives. He said, if you were to take the state of Texas and you were to go border to border and cover it with silver dollars three feet deep and mark one as unique and then take someone and blindfold them and drop them anywhere they want via helicopter and let them dig around and pick one blindfolded, that is equivalent to finding eight prophecies coming true. So I know some of you are a tough audience and you're skeptics, so let me tell you something a little more intense. 
what about the odds of 16 prophecies coming true? This is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. We can still mark a silver dollar at this point, so we're going to mark it. But this time we need to travel the distance from the earth to the sun times 30. Now the average distance, depending on the season, is 93 million miles to the sun. Have a person blindfolded and pick the marked coin. And by the way, if you could travel the speed of the light, that's about 186,000 miles per second. It would take you four hours and 15 minutes to make just one of these trips of 93 million miles. All right, some of you are tough. You need one more, don't you? All right, I got it for you. Look at the odds of 48 prophecies of the 300 coming true. This time, we're not able to use a silver dollar because it's too big. Instead, we need to use an electron. Now, some of you might be a while since you had science class. You're like, how small is an electron? They're really small. Let me give you an example. If we were to able to line up one inch of electrons, and you were able to count 250 a, 250 a minute, night and day, it would take you 19 million years to count one inch. That's a lot, isn't it? Now fill the entire universe with one marked electron. And you find that one. That's 48 prophecies coming true. In other words, come on. Really? And there are 300 that came true. Friend, I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He came according to prophecy in the Old Testament. Do you believe that? I believe that with all my heart. But now listen, we said that you had to be a son of that woman, of that household, of that family, of that tribe, of that nation, of that section, of the human race. But not just any son. This son had to be born in Bethlehem. Had he been born any other place, it would not have counted. This son had to be rejected by his people and accepted by the Gentiles, according to Isaiah 53. This son had to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, we learn in Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13. This son had to be crucified by the piercing of his hands and his feet, according to Psalm 22:16. Keep in mind, crucifixion had not even been invented yet. The son had to be raised from the dead, Psalm 16, 10. Not just any son, but the virgin-born son of God, who lived a perfect life, who died, who bled, who was buried, who rose, who was ascended, and his name is Jesus Christ. Are we able to see God's great prophetic telescope getting into focus? Are we able to see that the Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, the Bible is for us, but it is not about us. It's phenomenal how the Bible takes all these scriptures and weaves them together. And finally, when the Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, comes, what a glorious fulfillment of prophecy. This is the one way that Philip knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And this was the good news that he ran to tell Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is confronted with Jesus Christ. But the second thing I want you to notice, not only his confrontation with Jesus, but secondly, his confusion about Jesus. In verse 45, we have his confrontation. But in verse 46, we have his confusion. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now, what was the confusion that was in Nathanael's mind? Nathanael had a prejudice. He did not like the Nazarenes. Take a look at this map. Now, Nathanael was from Cana, and Cana and Nazareth were roughly 10 miles apart. Maybe they were rivals in their own version of the Highland Games. I don't know. But Nathanael couldn't stand the Nazarenes. He was prejudiced against the Nazarenes, and he made up his mind that no one good ever came out of Nazareth. 
If one was from Nazareth, he was automatically bad. And as a matter of fact, this was a commonly held prejudice in that day because most people kind of looked down upon the Nazarenes. Of course, nothing like that would happen today, right? Nazareth and Galilee were in the same locality, and they were saying, why those punk country bumpkins that live up in Galilee, and the worst of those country bumpkins are the folks that live in that little town of Nazareth. And so Nathaniel says, well, he couldn't be the Messiah if he came out of Nazareth. But what caused Nathaniel's prejudice? The thing that really caused his prejudice was his ignorance. You see, the mother of prejudice is ignorance, and the child of ignorance is prejudice. So what is prejudice? Prejudice comes when we make certain conclusions without having all the facts. A man went to South America, I'm told, and when he came back, he said, it's an amazing thing. All of the native people in South America walk in a single file when they walk. And his friend said, that's unusual. Are you certain? And he said, well, the one I saw did. <laughs> now, that's the way so many people are with their conclusions. They see something, and when they see something, they pass that something on to everything. And they say all people of that race are bad, or all people of this race are good. Nothing good could come from there, and everything good must come from here. That was what was wrong with Nathaniel. He had a prejudice, and it was very evident. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I want to say that his prejudice was rooted in ignorance. Let me also say right here, there are a lot of folks who are not Christians because they're prejudiced against the Lord Jesus Christ. They're prejudiced against the Bible. And they're prejudiced against the things of the Lord. They've heard certain things about Christians. They've heard certain things about the Bible. Yet, they have not investigated the Bible for themselves. Some people have heard about certain things that have happened in certain churches so that they don't desire God. You see, they're prejudiced against Jesus because of what they heard of the life of some so-called Christians. Like Nathaniel, they're confused because they're trusting in their own ignorance instead of the word of God. Nathaniel's problem was his prejudice, and his prejudice was rooted in ignorance. And I dare say there are a lot of people today, maybe even some here, that are prejudiced against Christians, and they're prejudiced against Christianity. They've never really examined the facts for themselves. And I tell you, if you were to see the Lord Jesus Christ as he is, if you were to see the Lord Jesus Christ as it is, I could not keep you away from Jesus. And I pray to God, that you would look past some of your biases and your preformed ideas and that you would let God speak to you today. Nathaniel almost missed finding Jesus because he had a preconceived idea. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, the third thing I want you to notice is not only his confrontation with Jesus, not only his confusion about Jesus, but I want you to notice his conversion to Jesus. How did he come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Look again at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. There's the cure for prejudice. Come and see. Investigate for yourself. I tell you, anybody listening who wants to know the truth about God can know it. Anybody. Anybody who wants to know the truth about Jesus Christ can know it. And God's invitation is always just come and see. I love how the prophet Jeremiah says it in chapter 29, verse 13. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Occasionally, I have the privilege of running into some atheists out in town. Maybe it's a coffee shop or elsewhere. And I like to start up a conversation with them and just to get to know their viewpoints. But ultimately, I ask them a question. And I say, are you an open-minded or a closed-minded atheist? 
And they look at me usually and say, I have no idea what that means. I'm like, well, let me explain. Let's take this napkin here, and I usually draw a little dot on it with my pen, and I say, this is what I know for the known universe. And of course, if you look at this napkin, it's not to scale. I think I have an example of a pretty napkin for you to look at there. And so I'll put a little dot on there, and I'll say, this is what I know. And then I'll give them my pen, and I'll say, what do you know? And then if they're really arrogant, they'll draw a circle around mine to let me know what they know. I'm like, fair enough, they probably do know more than me. But then I ask them a question. Is it possible that God lives outside of your known knowledge? Is it possible? And so far, they've all said yes. And then I get to say congratulations. You're not an atheist. You're an agnostic. You don't know. And they're like, fair enough, I don't know. And then I ask them a similar question. If God lived outside of your known knowledge, would you want to know him? And if they do, then I'll share the good news from the Bible with them right then and there. If not, I'll still pray for them, and we'll carry on. And I would say that I put the same challenge to you today. If you want to know whether Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you want to know whether the Bible is the Word of God or not, if you want to know whether Jesus Christ can save you or not, or change your life or not, I say the same thing that Philip said to his buddy Nate. Come and see. Oh, you may have some prejudice and you may have some idea, but I know the cure. Come and see. But when you do, let me recommend two ways to arrive. First, come honestly. I saw a little model on an office wall and it said this, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> now that's the way some people are. They want to know the truth about Jesus Christ. This is the way some of us are. Rather than trying to find the truth and discover a principle, we are defending a prejudice. We don't want the condition of our heart exposed, and that's why we fight against a loving God. We don't really want to know the truth. You watch some folks when they come to the Bible, they come to the Bible with their minds already made up, and a heart like this will not find God. You see, the invitation today is come and see. But as you come and see, you must come honestly with all your heart, and you must come humbly like a child. Come humbly. You see, the truth is not something you learn just simply to say how interesting and then put it in your pocket. Truth is not only interesting, it is unsettling. Not only are you going to be dealing with your own ideas and having to revise them, you must be willing to reform your life. I'm not saying that if you want to know the truth about God, you must be willing to do... I am saying that if you want to do, know the truth about God, you must be willing to do the will of God, or you'll never know the truth about God. You must have a surrendered will. And when you come and see, you must come with that surrendered will, and you must come humbly. This does not mean that you need to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Don't make any mistake about that. There is no greater example of this in the Bible than the thief on the cross beside Jesus. He believed, and Jesus told him what? Today you will be with me in paradise. Nathaniel was converted because he came honestly, and he also came humbly. Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Nathaniel came, he saw, and he was converted. Now, what was it that the Lord Jesus Christ showed him when he came? Well, Nathaniel was coming, walking up to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus sees him. Now, Jesus doesn't even speak to Nathaniel. First, he's speaking to the folks around, and he says, Behold, an Israelite. Nathaniel's thinking, Well, he knows my race. That's obvious. I look like an Israelite. But then he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed. He says, All right. He knows I'm a practicing Jew. That's a good guess. And whom is no deceit? Oh, he knows my, how my mind works, and he knows I wear my heart on my sleeve. And so Nathaniel says, how do you know me? You never even met me. And Jesus said, 
before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, and that did it. Now, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? I think he was studying the scriptures. You see, in a hot climate, this was their air conditioning. Almost every home had a fig tree planted by the front door, and people sat out under the shade and under that fig tree. And I believe Nathaniel was studying the scriptures. And I believe he wanted to know the truth. And the Lord Jesus Christ, by his omniscience, knew all about Nathaniel. And this simple exchange of words is all it took for him to believe. Now, I don't think that would have ever convinced Philip. I think Philip needed more. But just that much convinced Nathaniel. The Lord Jesus knew that he had an honest heart. Even though he had a hang-up with people from Nazareth. The Lord Jesus Christ started with him where he was, and he led him to the truth. And I tell you, dear friends... If you'll be honest with Jesus, he will start with you where you are, and he'll give you whatever is necessary. If you really want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know him. Let me say one last thing. Let me talk to you about not only his conversion to Jesus, but his confession of Jesus. And then we'll stop there. I want you to notice what Nathaniel said about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 1, verse 49. Nathaniel is convinced, and Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, what did he call Jesus? I don't have time to fully explain this in detail, but he called him three things. He called him master, he called him mediator, and he called him Messiah. The word rabbi means master. Son of God means mediator, the one whom God will send, and king of Israel means Messiah. He said, you're my master, you're my mediator, and you're the one that's going to lead us to God, and you are the Messiah, the king of Israel. This is his confession. I wonder today, are you willing to make that confession? Are you willing to confess Jesus Christ as your master? Are you willing to confess him as the son of God? Are you willing to confess him as the Messiah, the king of Israel, and the king of your heart? If you are, he will save you. I'll guarantee you on the authority of the Bible. Because if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of my favorite duty stations while serving as an active duty SEAL was in Kodiak, Alaska. It was there that I taught survival, mountaineering, over the beach operations, and how to do land and small boat navigation. And it was a lot of fun. And I'll also tell you that instructing SEALs is a lot like raising teenagers, because they know everything. And they're a tough crowd to instruct sometimes. Now, I realize I'm throwing myself under the bus when I say this. But I want you to have a clear picture of the clientele that we teach up there. Well, one crisp morning, I had 16 guys in a platoon out on a cliff. And myself and another instructor were demonstrating how to do a retrievable rappel. And so I picked a giant spruce tree as an anchor, and I took the ropes around it, and I rigged up the system, threw them over, and I had my buddy demonstrate how to go down. And then I said, all right, it's your turn. And so I looked at the leader. I said, go ahead and demonstrate this way. And then we'll proceed from there. And believe it or not, he had some choice words with me. He had a little bit of an attitude. And I said, listen, all you got to do is demonstrate it. And if you have a better way and it's safe, I'll let you do it. He then shared his finest sailor vocabulary with me. And he was rather irate as he starts setting up the system. But he did set it up. He got it all rigged up. And he had his two guys hooked to the lines. And they were ready to go. And they start backing up to the edge of the cliff. And I said, stop for a second. And I looked at him and I said, are you telling me your guys are ready to go over the cliff? And he looked at me with venom in his voice and he said, I said they're good to go. 
all right, you two come here and unclip from the ropes. And they looked at me, and they had similar language to their leader. And they said, we are good to go. I said, understood. Unclip from the ropes and come here. They did. And when they stood by me, I leaned over and picked a big kit bag up that was filled with climbing gear. And as soon as I picked it up, the entire rope system went racing over the edge of the cliff. You could have heard a pin drop. To say they had a teachable spirit for the remainder of training would be an understatement. You see, their leader's pride blinded him so much that in his fury of dealing with me, he never took the ropes around the tree. They had no anchor. He was about to send his two guys off to a certain death. It's my question for you today. Are you sure that you're ready to go off the cliff into eternity? Are you sure that you're ready to meet God Almighty? Because if your anchor is in this world, if it's in your job, your pride, your money, and a sort of other things, may I say in the most gentle and loving way possible, you are not ready. You are not ready to meet God. You're creator. But there's good news. That's why we're here to celebrate Easter. The Bible makes it very clear that God loves us and he desires us to be with him. The Bible also makes it very clear that you and I are sinners. And really, how far back do you have to look in your past? Getting ready this morning? We all have some serious issues. And the Bible makes it very clear you cannot earn your way to heaven. So many people get caught up with this. They think they can earn their way. Could you imagine heaven as a place where we interact and we say, how did you get here? Oh, wow, you gave that much money? Well, I gave even more. Ridiculous, right? The only reason we'll be in heaven is because we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the real and only anchor. And God knew this, and that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place and to die in mine. But he didn't stay dead. God raised him three days later, and that's why we're celebrating Easter today. And the best news of all is everyone, everyone who places their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done can have eternal life, and it can begin today. That's the gospel. That's what Nate ran so quick to tell his buddy all about, the good news. And that's why I'm here today, to tell you the same good news. I believe God is inviting some of you today to place your faith and trust in him. Maybe you feel him speaking to your heart for the first time, or maybe it's been a very long time and you walked away from him. Regardless, today is the day to make a decision to put that stake in the ground for Jesus Christ. I would put it this way. If you were to die today and stand before God, would it be clear that you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because if any of your reasoning starts with I, you don't understand the gospel. The only reason you can stand before God is because of what Jesus Christ has done. And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, God is calling you to trust him today. You might be tempted to put it off, and I would say to you for many reasons, including Proverbs 27.1, don't boast about tomorrow. You do not know what a day will bring forth. 
There are many people in this congregation that could testify about that. Don't put off important things like this. Instead, know that today is the day. Don't make excuses. Today's excuses will be tomorrow's regrets. And think about this. Five minutes into eternity, what are you holding on to that you'll be so pleased that you missed heaven because of its value? Nothing, right? There is nothing more precious than being able to spend eternity with a loving God. So here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for courage for you to step out from wherever you're at and to join some men and women down here front. And they're going to pray for you and with you and make sure you understand the decision you're making today to follow Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, this feels a little awkward to step out. And I'll tell you, I understand what that's like. As a teenager, I had a youth pastor give a simple invitation one time. He said, if you want to follow Christ, stand up right now. I was like, what about the music? And what about all the other things you guys normally do? There's like 100 teenagers there. But folks, realize this. There are men and women all around the world that die as soon as they make a decision to follow Christ. So stepping out to make a decision for Christ in a place where people are going to celebrate you, I don't know if we would be fair to say that's a bold thing to do. But we are going to pray for courage for you to do that because today is the day to make that decision. I pray with all my heart that if you don't know Jesus Christ, that you would know him today. So here's what we're going to do. As soon as the music starts, you stand up and you join us down front and let us pray for you and let us equip you with the most important decision you'll make in your life. And I promise you, now I promise you also, there's no rainbows and lollipops when you make a decision. If anything, you're a declared enemy on the battlefield. More trouble will still come your way, but you'll have hope when that trouble comes. And nothing is better than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you give people courage right now. I remember how fast my heart was racing the day you called me. May they step out and say in this moment, I want to start or come back to a relationship with Jesus. May this be a defining moment in their life and their relationship with you. Oh, Father God, move on hearts today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship, church.